Would Captain Pedro Allende y Saavedra witness when he arrived at his new posting horrified him? His transfer to the newly established Presidio in 1777 was part of a wider reorganization of the Spanish military presence in the Pimaria Alta and really all of North America. It had been a year since the site had been selected, so the new captain might have expected some rough going, but certainly not the sad situation before him. The walls for this Presidio, which were meant to stand as a bulwark against raiding Apaches, had barely gotten off the ground, and already there was no money to build them up higher. Even worse, none of the laborers in the area had been paid, and the troops he was supposed to command barely had any provisions. He wrote immediately to complain to his superior, who was also recently installed in his post. One can perhaps forgive Allende Isabedra if, at first glance, he may have doubted that this new presidio, built on the upper Santa Cruz at a place called Tucson, would ever last. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 11, The Presidios. Allende y Saavedra's posting at Tucson was, in a way, the culmination of years of reorganizing and restructuring Spanish control over its far northern provinces. Much like any business, the empire was trying to get the most out of its far-flung settlements, and probably also employed whatever the 18th century version of the buzzwords streamlined and agile were. To that end, we must rewind more than a decade to something we briefly touched on a couple times in the previous episode the inspection tour of the Marques de Rubí. Rubí, whose full name was Cayentano Maria Pignatelli Rubí Cobrera y San Clement, arrived in the New World in 1764 as part of a military mission sent by the still-new King Carlos III. The mission had been prompted by Spain's recent defeat in the Seven Years' War and concerns that the British might be able to take places previously assumed to be secure, just as they had taken Havana during the conflict. Carlos III was an energetic, pragmatic, and innovative monarch who had a vision of one day taking back Florida, which had also been lost to the British at the war's end. But he also wanted to ensure that, until that could happen, the interior provinces, and that's what the Spanish called the northern frontier areas of Texas, New Mexico, Sonora, and California, would be brought into better shape. Since 1700, the cost of defending the interior provinces had doubled, while native raids and thievery had increased drastically. A member of Ruby's staff summed up the mission by saying they were to learn why the Apaches and other tribes were, quote, so audacious, and why the soldiers were, quote, of so little use. Ruby was therefore tasked with following up on Rivera's inspection and recommendations of nearly 40 years previous, which one source says were, quote, honored mainly in the breach, end quote. It's not just that Rivera's recommendations have been ignored. A viceroy in the 1750s pointed out that they were now hopelessly out of date and virtually unknown, as few copies had actually been made and circulated. Said viceroy made an attempt to correct this problem, but the official he entrusted it to died, and then the Seven Years' War happened, upending the entire plan. So it was that in 1766, Rubí set out on a two-year inspection tour of the presidios and missions of the interior provinces. The first year, he would go up into New Mexico and down again through the provinces of Nueva Vizcaya and Sonora, staying with Ansa at the two-back presidio during the Christmas season of 1766. The next year, he traveled into Coahuila and Texas, where he was not a fan of what he saw. 
At the Presidio of San Saba, for example, he wrote that it was badly built and that the guard towers for it were ill-aligned with their opposed angles. He summed it up all by saying, quote, This is a fortification as barbarous as the enemy who attacks it, end quote. In Texas, Ruby also saw firsthand the general trend in the interior provinces of shifting away from missions to presidios. We already talked about Anza's distaste for the missions, but Ruby could see as well as anyone how the natives no longer flocked to the Franciscan missions and how people wanted a presidio to protect them from raids. However, the presidios were notoriously inefficient for all the reasons Rivera had spelled out in his recommendations. They had also been developed haphazardly, with little communication or coordination with each other. This would have to be addressed. When he arrived back in Mexico City in 1768, Rubí set himself to writing his recommendations, which would ultimately go on to affect Spanish policy through the end of the century. These regulations would be enacted in Mexico provisionally in 1771, before being officially declared by Carlos III in 1772. The regulations of 1772, as they are called, first and foremost strove to bring order to the presidios. And the first order of business was to do away with the fortifications and missions that were so understaffed, dilapidated, or ineffective that they weren't contributing at all. Ruby had an idea for a cordon of some 15 posts, roughly 100 miles apart, running between the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf of California at roughly 30 degrees latitude. Louisiana and California were kept out of this loop as they had their own administrative changes happening. And these new posts would need to be overseen by someone, a commandant inspector. As part of the moving and consolidation, most of the settlements in Texas were given the axe, and Ruby advised giving up East Texas altogether. San Antonio was too entrenched to be simply gotten rid of or moved, the same with Santa Fe in New Mexico, which were both well above Ruby's proposed line. These, the document said, would form a, quote, separate frontier. These two outliers were to have a significant soldier bump, the cost of which would be borne out by the fact that the plan was shutting down seven other presidios. Along these same lines, he considered Tubac to have enough settlers that a presidio was not needed anymore and recommended that it be moved, something we'll get to a little later on. As long as they were moving presidios around, the recommendations also spelled out how they should be built. First and foremost, the new sites had to be near water and good pasture. The memory of San Saba, with its poorly built design that prevented coverage from its two towers, also raises its ugly head here. The regulations of 1772 went so far as to spell out a standardized plan for each presidio and what materials the fortification should be made out of. Expensive and slightly unrealistic, this last part was never fully implemented. But what's the use in having new forts if they're not used? Along with this new line of fortifications, Ruby also called for aggressive campaigns against raiding native tribes, I'm looking at you Apaches, to bring them to heel. He had seen firsthand, in the words of one of his staff, quote, the tremendous damage his majesty's subjects suffered daily from the barbarians, end quote. Calling for near genocide of the most antagonizing of these tribes, Ruby's plan also put in more regulations to make sure soldiers were properly trained and overseen. It also did its best to once again eliminate the graft often displayed by Presidio commanders, 
Though, as one historian puts it, the recommendation, quote, could not wring corruption out of a society in which public office had long been regarded as a legitimate source of private profit, end quote. Diving a bit deeper into the regulations, we find other equally impractical bits. In covering what a typical soldier should have in supplies, the recommendation was for each to have 123 pounds of gear, six horses, a colt, and a mule. Quite frankly, this was unrealistic and ran counter to Ansa the Elder's observations that if soldiers could travel lighter, it would help them match the Apaches and not stir up as much dust, which gave away their position. As part of the recommended gear, Ruby made standard the knee-length sleeveless leather coats designed to deflect native arrows. This coat would give frontier soldiers their name, soldados de cuera, or leather jacket soldiers. Now, one historian referred to this heavy jacket, I mean, it could weigh up to 18 pounds, as, quote, both a life preserver and a straitjacket, end quote. However, it should be mentioned that Anza was told by a friendly Amerindian during the Seri campaign that the rebels feared the soldados de cuera the most. So all this is going on while Anza is busy presiding over Tubac in dealing with relentless Apache attacks. But while he was organizing the California expeditions, the other change recommended by Ruby, the creation of the Commandant Inspector, was carried out. The Commandant Inspector was to be the center command of the Frontier Army and have the authority to force Presidio captains to listen to the regulations of 1772. So now it's time to bring back to the table the first Commandant Inspector, Hugo O'Connor. We briefly met him last week as an antagonist to Anza and the plan to settle San Francisco. Being named to the position of Commandant Inspector is what gave his opinion so much weight. You might be asking yourself how the heck a red-headed Irishman got to wield such authority in Spanish North America. Well, let me tell you. O'Connor was born in Dublin in 1736. He was one of the so-called wild geese, or Irish Catholics who fled the oppressive role of those darn Protestant English dogs. These men fled to the Catholic kingdoms of Europe and enrolled in their armies. O'Connor eventually made his way into Spanish service thanks to his cousin, Alexander, or Alejandro, O'Reilly, who himself would do great work for Spain in Louisiana in 1769. He would originally sign up with a volunteer regiment from Aragon, and would be sent to Cuba in 1763 and to New Spain in 1765. By 1767, he was in Texas and was subbing in as both acting captain of the Presidio of Los Adaios and as governor, where he served with energy and distinction. And this is where he was when Ruby came through on his inspection, and O'Connor was noted for having composed a new list of prices for his men that impressed the Marquess. With a lot of help from his cousin, who is now serving as a field marshal, the Viceroy of New Spain appointed O'Connor as Commandant Inspector in September of 1771. This new appointment he took upon himself with action and vigor, eagerly going through and whacking presidios according to the regulations of 1772, while also finding time to tangle with the Apaches. It's toward the end of his time in this role that he would be in the Pimaria Alta. In line with Ruby's recommendations, O'Connor wanted to remove the Presidio at Tubac. O'Connor had toured Tubac and found very little there he liked. It seems that, in Anza's absence, some of the old officer corruption so endemic to the Presidios had cropped up. He also did not think highly of the way that the soldiers or the civilian militia were armed or trained. 
Yet another wave of Apache attacks also helped sway his opinion about Tucson being the better defensive position. So on August 20th, 1775, while Anza was down in Orcasitas preparing for his second expedition to California, O'Connor and Garces mapped out a spot at San Agustin de Tucson where the new Presidio would be located. Garces had been a proponent of moving the Presidio for some time, yet another reason there was friction between him and Anza. As an aside, O'Connor would also decree that the Presidio at Terranate in Sonora should be moved some 50 miles north into the San Pedro River Valley, near the site of modern-day Tombstone. This Presidio, however, would be short-lived. From the get-go, it was pounded by the Apaches, who killed a high number of soldiers as they tried to either harvest crops or even just build the Presidio itself. Within five years, the site would be abandoned. I honestly can't tell you why O'Connor thought moving it there was a good idea in the first place, seeing as it was north of Ruby's recommended defensive line, and the Apaches had enjoyed the run of the place since the Sobaipuris left in the 1760s. Tucson is a little easier to understand. It had a good supply of wood and water, and was already somewhat fortified from when Anza told the natives to build defensive works. Plus, it would also now serve to protect travelers going on the new route between Sonora and California. With Anza off exploring San Francisco Bay, the actual task of moving the Presidio fell to Lieutenant Juan Maria de Oliva, an elderly soldier who O'Connor had actually recommended for retirement. We don't know when the exact move happened, but by November 1776, we have confirmation that the soldiers had established themselves in Tucson. 1776 also marks the start of yet another rejiggering of the Spanish administrative apparatus. By the by, all these are part of those bourbon reforms I mentioned back in episode 8. Anyway, in July 1776, the king elevated José de Galvez to the position of Secretary of the Indies. This was an incredibly powerful position, the top of all organizational charts of the empire's overseas holdings. From this perch, Galvez knew exactly what he wanted to do. And he wasn't just basing this on reports coming back to him. In 1765, the nobleman from Andalusia had been appointed by the king as visitor general to New Spain. You can think of him as a minister on a special assignment slash fact-finding mission for the crown. He threw himself into this role with relish, arranging for a more efficient collection of tribute, plus new taxes, and establishing royal monopolies on things such as salt, gunpowder, tobacco, and playing cards. I'm not sure why you need a monopoly on playing cards, but thanks to Galvez, the crown had one. Galvez was also one of the leaders in carrying out the king's order to evict all the Jesuits from New Spain in 1767. He would also be one of the driving forces behind the colonization of California and the relentless wars against the Seres. In the late 1780s, he would even be ennobled as the Marquess de Sonora for all his work in the New World. So when he was appointed as the head of all the overseas holdings, he definitely had ideas he wanted to carry out. Perhaps the biggest of them was something he had dreamed about since 1768. Why not take the interior provinces and spin them off from the Viceroyalty of New Spain into their own thing? This would not be a new Viceroyalty, not really, but would have the same kind of functionality. Thus was born the Comandancia General de las Provincias Internas, 
or the general command of the interior provinces. In theory, the six interior provinces, which included California, Texas, New Mexico, Coahuila, Nueva Vizcaya, which is basically the Mexican state of Chihuahua, Sonora, Sinaloa, which includes Arizona up to the Gila River, would fall directly under a new position, the Commandant General. The Commandant General would then report directly to Galvez, and thus the king himself. To start off this grand new project, Galvez elevated Teodoro de Croix, a Frenchman who had served in the Spanish forces for 30 years and was the nephew of a former viceroy of New Spain. Now, this looked great on paper, but was not an easy transition. Despite the fact that anyone who'd ever been viceroy of New Spain knew how difficult it was controlling the hostile north, the current viceroy saw the formation of the general command as a personal attack against him. The viceroy would continue to try and exert influence over these northern provinces, mainly by leveraging the fact that the goods used to support all these far-flung places were all coming from the civilized parts of Mexico that he controlled. Also, Qua's elevation angered O'Connor. The two were bitter rivals who harbored deep personal grudges against each other. O'Connor, more than a bit miffed about not getting the Commandant General gig himself, considered Qua a dandy who hadn't spent years learning the ins and outs of the harsh northern frontier. In a July 22, 1777 letter to the Commandant General reporting on conditions, O'Connor started off with the snide opening of, quote, I was well aware that such a report was a necessary result of the change of command, particularly for a leader such as your lordship, who has not seen the lands of which it is comprised. End quote. Thankfully, the acrimony between the two would not fester for long, as O'Connor would be out of his post before the end of 1777. You'll see it reported both that he either refused to work with Qua and feigned an illness to get out of his job, or that legitimate health issues allowed him to not work for his rival. Quite truthfully, I'm not sure which one is fact. However, the latter does take on a different light when you learn that O'Connor will die at the young age of 44, just a couple years later while serving as governor in the Yucatan. With all this high-level change and reorganization going on, let's focus back on some of our Arizona-centric main players and locations. Let's start with Anza, who had returned successfully from his California expedition, but now found himself heading to Mexico City once again, this time with the Quechan leader Palma in tow. Anza had wined and dined Palma, showering him with gifts and the promise of more to come. What's more is Galvez, and thus the king, promised that two missions and a garrison would be sent to the Quechans, and that they would enjoy all the fruits of full trade with the Spanish. In the capital of New Spain, Palma would meet with the viceroy and be baptized, with Anza himself standing in as godfather. I can't find out exactly when Anza was told that his post at Tubac was now gone. Nor can I say with any certainty that if he had been there at the time of O'Connor's tour, that he could have changed the commandant inspector's mind. What we do know, though, is that Anza did not like the change and protested it to Qua. After his successful expedition, Anza had been named military commander of Sonora, which made this more than just a simple airing of grievances. And, funny enough, Qua agreed with him. He gave Anza full permission to move the Presidio back to Tubac and also remove the Doom Presidio that had been moved north from Terranate. Except, uh, yeah, none of that is going to happen. Because before he could act, Anza learned that he was getting a promotion. Not only would he be elevated to the rank of full colonel, but Carlos III had also appointed him 
governor of New Mexico. At this point, Anza is going to mostly leave our narrative, like a beloved character leaving your favorite TV show and only showing up in cameo appearances in later seasons. But he had been the commander of the Tubac garrison for more than 15 years, and spent it all in the mostly thankless task of trying to protect everyone from the Apaches. He had done it ably, but more important, he had done it honestly. Like his father, the memory of his leadership would long outlast him. With Anza now leaving Arizona, let's turn our attention back to Tucson and Tubac, because we have now come full circle to where we started, with Captain Allende y Saavedra arriving at Tucson and shocked at its condition. He also received distressing news from the old Presidio site at Tubac. In November 1777, messengers arrived at Tucson reporting that the Apaches had only gotten more bold since the Presidio had been removed. They were daily attacking people and openly grazing stolen horses in the Santa Cruz River Valley. The citizens had tried to organize a militia to at least put up some semblance of defense and recruited retired Captain Juan Crisostomo Ramirez to the project. However, Crisostomo, who had been a soldier at Tubac for a quarter of a century, had barely started training this scrappy group before he died. He would be buried at Tumacacari, along with the hopes of Tubac residents for relief. In Tucson, Allende y Saavedra started putting his own funds into building the Presidio's palisades. I want to round out today by turning our attention back to Garces, who we last left with his fellow priest, Tomas Eharch, among the Quechans in 1775. Garces, however, did not really want to stay along the Colorado. No, his object was to make it back to the Hopis. I know what you're thinking. It seems that every priest and his dog that enters Arizona has this burning desire to head north to the Hopis. Even I'm at the point of wanting to scream, Guys, it's been a century. It's time to let this one go. But at least Garces had another reason. As we talked about last week, he favored a northern crossing into California. And if the Hopi people could be subdued, that meant the route from New Mexico to the California coast would be wide open. This was his preferred project after his trip with Anza, but the Viceroy of New Spain shot him down and told him that before he could head north, the Franciscans must establish a foothold among the Quechans. Eventually, he reached a compromise where Eharch would stay and minister to the Quechans, freeing Garces up to travel. But Garces was actually preceded by a young, zealous priest from New Mexico named Silvestre Vélez de Escalante. Escalante made it to the Hopi Pueblo of Walpi on July 2, 1775. While there, though, the people put on a ceremonial display with masked male dancers, who wore pretty much nothing but the mask. Deeply scandalized and feeling the whole lot of the Hopis were possessed by some foul spirit, Escalante was gone the very next day. Garces would not learn of this incident until much later, after he had started his own journey. In February 1776, the priest started on a trip down the Colorado River from the Quechan Territory. He then did an about-face heading up the river to find his northern route to California. Here, he encountered Mojaves who showed him a route westward, and he actually did reach the San Gabriel Mission near Los Angeles. He even took some time to explore a bit northward into California's San Joaquin Valley. Having proven his northern route, the only remaining thing was to break a trail from the Colorado to New Mexico, right through Hopi territory. 
Once arriving back in Arizona near the Needles, he struck east again with Mojave guides and was introduced to the Yavapai people. Among them was a man who claimed to be a Hopi and was willing to guide him. Garces wasn't too specific about directions in his written account, so we don't have the best idea of the route he took, though James H. McClintock is sure that he saw the Grand Canyon and probably interacted with the Havasu people. Finally, he arrived at the Pueblo of Oraibi on July 1st, just shy of a year after Escalante. The Hopis, however, were less than welcoming. One man there addressed him in Spanish and explained that he had been baptized and would gladly escort the priest eastward to the Zuni. However, everyone else in the Pueblo, he warned, was a Chichimeco and did not want to hear anything about the Spanish or their god. The very next day, before the sun rose, the leader of Oraibi told all his people that no one was to become a Christian and anyone found talking to the priest would be punished. For two days, Garces sat in the middle of a dirty plaza, trying to get someone, anyone, to speak with him or accept the gifts he had brought. Neither adult nor child took the bait. The people even refused him basic hospitality such as food or water. Finally, a group did gather to speak with him. Well, more like speak at him. At dawn on the third day since his arrival, various members of the community assembled and told him firmly, that he had to leave. The priest made one more stab, holding aloft his crucifix and making a fiery speech in Spanish in what native words he knew. But at the end of the day, he was hightailing it out of Oribe. In his journal, he marked the day of his ejection as July 4th, 1776. As just a random aside I found interesting, after those plucky tax-dodging colonists declared their independence from Britain on that very same day, Captain Ajante y Saavedra in Tucson would take up a collection from his men, eventually donating 459 pesos to the cause of American independence. That's actually not too shabby considering that a good horse costs 7 pesos. Anyway, Garces would eventually make his way back down south via the Colorado, crossing it above its confluence with the Gila, and then making his way back to San Javier del Bac, arriving on September 17, 1776, after having been gone from his supposed post for nearly a year. While this latter-day Kino had not made it to New Mexico, a letter from him about his travels did. This wound up in the hands of Escalante, now in Santa Fe, encouraged by the news that they could get to California by cutting west, a new explorative group had formed. This small band of 12 people, including Escalante, his superior Francisco Atanasio Dominguez, and Captain Bernardo de Miera y Pacheco, left Santa Fe on July 29th. Since the Hopis had proven to be intractable, the route took them northwest to go around them. And it took them far northward, making it beyond the Gunnison River in western Colorado, hence today's Dominguez Escalante National Conservation Area in that region. They would eventually reach the present site of Provo, Utah, and hear tales of the Great Salt Lake. They began to head southwest, but on October 8th, they encountered a snowstorm, which blanketed the mountains in the distance and promised to block any passes. Captain Miera y Pacheco wanted to keep going, sure that Monterey could only be like 10 days away, max. The priests, on the other hand, were done. They started back, but the captain coming along only reluctantly. Finally, to quell any more dissension, 
Dominguez proposed casting lots. Luckily for the priest, and really for Mier y Pacheco since he had no concept of the Sierra Madres they would still have to cross, they won and the group headed back to Santa Fe. On the verge of starvation, the party would have one great obstacle left, crossing Glen Canyon. The group had to chip out steps in the rock with hand axes and lower all their gear and animals using ropes and slings. This spot later became known as the Crossing of the Fathers, though today it sits under the surface of Lake Powell. They returned, exhausted and hungry, to Santa Fe on January 1st, 1777. This expedition pretty much killed the idea of a land route between Santa Fe and California. The Dominguez Escalante route, being a massive 1,800-mile circle, wasn't practical. And with the Hopis still sticking out their tongues at any attempt by the Spanish to coerce them, the more direct route was impossible. In retrospect, it's probably a good thing that the Dominguez Escalante expedition, one of the last great pushes of exploration of the period, failed. Because in just a few years, all our main players will have enough to do dealing with the various fires that will break out in the current domains. The Quechans, who swore loyalty to Spain like just yesterday, will unexpectedly rise up in revolt. And those old boogeymen, the Apaches and the Comanches, would just keep on coming, leading everyone, including our old friend Anza, to suggest an entirely new way of dealing with them. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.